Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. My name is Nick Gillespie. I'm the Community Life Pastor here at Covenant, and uh, I have the honor and privilege of jumping into God's Word and continuing uh, a sermon series that we started last week called Holy Community. Uh, what we were every every year, I uh, take a look at like what is gospel community, what is church community, how are we formed, what are we to do. And this particular year, we're going to be taking a look at how is it that we love one another? How do we treat one another uh, in this family? Uh, the word holy means to be set apart. When God formed the church, and we looked at this last week in Exodus, when God formed the church, part of the way that he formed and delivered and saved us is that he also gave us like his good law. And uh, part of living this law out is learning how to love one another. And what really distinguishes us from other communities, other clubs, organizations, gatherings of people, is that we take seriously fulfilling this law of Christ, this law of love that God has given us. And, and again, I'm not, you know, I would highly encourage if you didn't hear last week's sermon to, to go back and actually listen to that because it will be the theological pinnings of what we're going to look at practically today. So if you're online, again, here in this room, you're like, hey, I didn't catch the first part. I would really encourage you to listen to the first part because it appropriately helps us understand God's law, how God's law was given to us, why we ought to keep it, and how it is that the law actually fulfills a relationship that God has invited us into. But this morning, we're going to take a look at, and um, we're going to open up a, a book called James. And James was an early writer to the Christian, Christian churches in the New Testament, and James really looks much more practically at how was the church applying the law of God in their relationships with one another. And he's going to kind of take a look at through this book that we're going to, as you know, like this sermon series will be guided through James kind of from here, kind of during the rest of the course of the years, we kind of take a, take a look at it uh, probably about every quarter or so. But James really kind of unpacks and challenges the church to take seriously fulfilling the law amongst themselves. And it's not going to be comfortable. There's some things that James points out to the church that they're doing or not doing towards one another, and it is uh, not living into the calling that God has given them, and James is wanting to encourage and to challenge them to take seriously living a holy life, living the life that God has called them to live. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at that. Uh, it was several years ago that um, I was actually on campus at BGSU, and uh, this is back when I was the director of a campus ministry called Crew, and um, part of my responsibility was like recruiting students. You know, like every year, it was kind of trying to reach the next freshman uh, class and trying to do outreach and build bonds and establish relationships. And, you know, the hopes was that you would connect with a certain number of students that, uh, one, would come to really understand how much Jesus loved them and would follow him, but also they would kind of become like your next leaders, like in, in your ministries, you kind of graduated upperclassmen uh, when they kind of were sent from BG. And so there's one particular guy who's a freshman who 
man, I, I really wanted him to get involved with us. You know, he was, uh, he was tall, he was good looking, he was athletic, he was a fraternity guy, so very social, uh, very great, easy person to be around. And so uh, I spent a lot of time just building a bridge of relationship with him and all that kind of stuff. And so I had spent a couple months just kind of developing this relationship with him. And we're hanging out. It's kind of into the spring semester. The semester's going to end within like a month, month and a half, something like that. And we're talking on campus, hanging out, uh, sitting on a bench. I mean, he, you know, it was a great conversation. He just starts sharing stuff with me about his family of origin, his life that he had never shared with me before. And I'm like, yes, like building like real like trust, like in this relationship, like it's, you know, it's great. I'm, I'm super excited. You know, it's like what I live for. Well, as we're talking, we're sitting next to one another. I notice a big booger in his nose. I mean, it was like right here. And it was like staring at me from the side angle as we were like talking, this giant booger hanging from his nose. And I'm like, Nick, concentrate on him. Listen to him. Don't think booger in your brain. You don't be staring at the booger in his nose, you know? And so I'm like watching us trying to, you know, have this great conversation with him. And, uh, and then I start having this internal struggle of, do I tell him or not? Should I, should I interrupt him in this great conversation we're having? Should I sort of damper the mood, you could say, to tell him he's got this giant booger in his nose? And so I'm having this internal struggle, do I do this or not? And, you know, and then part of me was kind of fearful of like, maybe this might look poorly on me if I kind of point it out, or I don't want to embarrass him and stuff. And so I don't know what you would have done. I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him. <laughs> and so our conversation wraps up like 20 minutes later. I'm like, hey, I'll walk you back to your dorm. And so I walk him back to his, his uh, resident hall. And we say goodbye. As we're saying goodbye, he just, uh, in, my, in my mind, it had been gone so long. I'm like, please don't discover the booger right now with me with you. Like, I hope that you figure this out later. Um, he kind of goes like this with his nose. And he, he's like, oh, dude, I got a giant booger in my nose. He's like, how long has this been there? And I'm like, a little bit, you know? And he's like, why, why didn't you tell me I had a booger in my nose, man? You got to tell me these things, you know? So I don't know, you've definitely been there, right? Someone's got something in their teeth, you know, something like doesn't look right. And you're like, man, do I tell this person or not? Well, what James is going to do in the text that we're looking at today, he's going to show the church something that's not obvious to them. Something is quite ugly with how they're treating one another and treating each other. And they don't see it, but he's going to bring it to their attention. It's probably going to make them uncomfortable. It might make us uncomfortable as well. And this idea of favoritism, showing partiality to some over and above others when it comes to the way we relate to one another within the church. The big idea this morning is this. Jesus has received you. He's received you. He's received me. He's saved us. He's brought us into his family. Therefore, we're called to receive others, just like he has received us. And so let's take a look. We're going to dive here into James chapter 2. Here's what James writes. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in... And if you pay attention to the one who was wearing the fine clothing and say to him or her, hey, you sit over here, sit up front or sit in the middle row, sit, have the preferable seating. And you say to the poor man or poor woman, hey, you stand back there or you sit over there, you sit here at my fate. Are you not making distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen. 
my brothers and my sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honor name, honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are, not, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For if he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What we're going to find here is that James packs a lot in a little bit amount of time. And sometimes it's not very clear his train of thought and what he's trying to string together. But here's what he's doing. One, he's going to present the ugly blemish in the church. He's going to reveal to them that which they don't see, the way that they're treating and making distinctions among themselves. And then he's going to cut them off at the head because he anticipates they're going to make an excuse. He anticipates already that they're going to have a defense of why they shouldn't really care that much or pay attention to how they are fulfilling or failing to fulfill God's law. And so he's going to kind of cut them off and make an argument of why they're still obligated to keep the whole law. And then finally, he's going to call them to the vision of true gospel community. He's going to say, this is what true gospel community is really all about. And so that's kind of where we're going this morning. So within our church, I would say we do a pretty good job at welcoming people. We do a pretty good job of welcoming people. I'm the community life pastor, I should know. You know, I get to help serve on the team and lead some of the teams who, you know, we have meticulously thought through, you know, when someone for the very first time steps out of their car or even those who for the very first time join us online, what is their experience like? Are they received? You know, are people greeting them? You know, do they feel comfortable? They know, do they know what to do? Is the signage right? All that kind of stuff. When they fill out a connect card, when they fill out a connect card, is there someone following up with them personally? Is there someone coming alongside of them and helping them understand and navigate kind of the matrix of, of how to get plugged in here in the church? We've like thought through these things and we do a pretty good job. You know, I, often, not occasionally, but often people come to me and, you know, kind of as a community life pastor say, hey, I just want to let you know, like, this is one of the most welcoming churches I've ever been a part of. You know, I've been, you know, some people, especially being a kind of Bowling Green's somewhat of a transplant kind of community. You have people that come from all over the place who come here and, man, I've gone to all kinds of churches from all over the country, and this has been one of the most welcoming experiences I've ever had. That's said of us often, which we should be really glad about. We should be really excited about that. But also, I've talked to people who have left our church who said that they struggle to find a place to belong. I started this position almost two years ago and three months in, there was a family that like, left our church, they served our church, uh, they gave faithfully to our church, they invited people from this church into their home, and they said one of the things that they were sad about is that no one ever invited them over to their house. They felt like, even though they extended themselves, no one was willing to extend themselves to them and invite them into real community to really belong. And so for us... While we might do pretty well with this, 
that doesn't mean that we can't grow and that we need to pay attention to how it is that some people might come into our church and struggle to feel like they belong and are part of the family of God because we might have some unseen biases in our own hearts and our own lives. Our big, big point number one that I kind of want to bring up is what James says is that the church, in order for the church to receive others, she must do the dirty work of self-reform. In order for the church to be able to receive others, must do the dirty work of self-reform. Self-reform means taking stock of what's going on inside of one's heart that might preclude it from welcoming others, from greeting others, of inviting people into relationship with yourself. Favoritism is a fruit of underground idolatry. Favoritism is a fruit of underground idolatry. Idolatry is valuing certain things over and above God, valuing certain things within a person and making distinctions and judgments, classifying people in our heart in ways that God wouldn't judge us and doesn't judge us. You see, in our heart, we value some things over others. For this church that James is addressing, they valued the wealthy over and above those who were poor. And theologians are kind of split on what was happening within not just a church. This actually was written to several churches within a certain area. Some think that maybe that there were the wealthy that were coming into their church and kind of in society, in their community, they had power over those who just attended the church. And they kind of wanted to like gain favor for them so that come Monday, come Monday when they interact with this person in the marketplace, they might be on like their good side. Some theologians speculate that something like that might have been happening, something that this is more hypothetical. Either way, either way, distinctions were being made. And in the hearts of this, these bodies of Christians, you know, those who were wealthy and affluent were received more favorably. They were given more attention, more time than those who were poor. So why do we play favorites? What's some of this idolatry? I think, number one, I think we are inclined to kind of ask ourselves, what's in it for me? You know, what's, if I'm going to like spend time building a relationship with you and spending time with you, what's in it for me? How do you benefit me? You know, are you funny? You know, do you kind of reflect on the outside who I hope to be? Do you have things that I would like? Do you have a certain personality that makes me feel comfortable? Do you have a certain educational a certain education level that makes conversation easier? Do we have shared interests? There's all these sort of things where we ask ourselves what's in it for me. And there's ways in which we're tempted to exclude some because they don't have these externals. They don't have these things that make it easier for us where we don't quite see like the what's in it for me. So we're not willing to extend ourselves or give ourselves into that person or that relationship because we just don't see the immediate benefit of them for myself. We also have fear. I think fear, too, keeps us from building relationships with others. To be human is to be insecure. To be human is to be uncertain. I desire safety. I want to self-protect. I want to create a world and a worldview that is safe for myself. And if you hold ideals that are different than mine, then I begin to feel uncertain. If you hold, you know, political views or if you work a certain job, or you have a certain social economic status that might compromise my own personal safety, then I'm going to find myself 
repelling or moving away or drawing away from you because you threaten me. And so we have to pay attention to unchecked biases in our own hearts. We have to be aware that as human beings, we can very easily draw these biases and make distinctions amongst people. Stand a hand of fellowship to those who make us feel comfortable, those who perpetuate the type of worldview and lifestyle we want to live, and withhold our hand from others. Now, what, this, what does this mean? I mean, we don't have favored seats. Do you mean there's not like this row right here where the elders and teachers sit or up here on the stage or anything like that? In fact, a lot of us would be mortified to think of sitting on front of the stage or sitting up front in the first row, right? We don't have that. But for us, a lot of our capital is social capital, giving our attention to people. How much time am I willing to spend with somebody? You know, if I find you quickly annoying, am I finding a way out of that conversation in order to spend time with someone else? When it comes to inviting you into my home for lunch or inviting you to come to my community group, are there potentially unchecked biases where I'm like, man, you know, we've got this nice community group here and you don't quite fit what we look like and you might compromise some of that. So, I'm, you know, I'm just not going to invite you. And no one's going to f- see that in you. No one's going to fault you for that. No one's going to call you out on that. And yet, what James says, when we make these distinctions and give favor and extend favor to others, it's evil. It's sin. Because we're valuing some over others. And we're inhibiting our very own brothers and sisters from having a seat at the table and experiencing meaningful friendship and relationship that God intends for us to extend to one another. And so for us to receive other people, it takes every single one of us understanding and being humble enough to look at our heart and understand that we have unchecked biases that we need to be aware of. So James kind of quickly kind of moves towards, you know, after he kind of calls them out on the rug of this apparent sin that they have, this booger in their nose, you could say, you know, he begins to kind of say, hey, before you begin to make excuse, let's remember that as a church, we're called to fulfill the whole law, that we as a church will be measured against the whole law of Christ, not just part of it. So what he's already anticipating is that this church is going to say, James, man, before you get like so harsh on us, man, we, we serve, we give, we, you know, we don't do these other things. Like, we're faithful to our spouses. Like, you know, look at all the good things that we do. You know, on a test, we got a 90 out of 100. That's an A, you know, A minus, whatever. Uh, that, you know, that's good. And what James says is when it comes to the law of God, we, we're, we don't have permission to fail any part of it. That really, we are called to fulfill all of it. And when we don't, then we have to reckon that as sin and recognize, you know, the standard that God is looking at us from. And again, to understand the context of that, I would really encourage you to listen to last week's sermon because it it really helps explain why it is that God gave us his law and why it is that we ought to feel responsibility to fulfilling it. If you're a coach, if you're a coach, like let's say you were a basketball coach, you would want two things out of your team, out of your players. Number one, you would want them to be skilled in the sport, right? You'd want them to know how to hit free throws. You'd want them to know how to set pick and rolls and run plays and to dribble well and pass well. You know, you'd want them to be able to, like, do the abilities of the actual sport themselves. You want them to be proficient at those things. But if your team was annihilating the competition, 
was annihilating the competition because they did the skills super well, but they were jerks. You wouldn't be okay with that as a coach. If you had a team full of egotistical maniacs who didn't respect you or respect the opponents of the competition, you probably aren't satisfied with your team because you want them to have the character too. You want them to be good sportsmen and good sportswomen. But at the same sense too, you wouldn't be okay with a team that was just polite and kind to each other and polite to you and respectful to you and your opponents, but they got waxed, right? You wouldn't be okay with that. You'd say, man, women, you know, we need to learn the game. We need to get better. We need to be competitive. That's the whole point of us being together as a team. You want a whole team, and if they lacked one way or the other, you would call them to press in to where they lacked. And what James is saying here is, hey, you might be faithful to your spouse, but if you are making distinctions and making judgments against one another, he actually equates it to murder here. That's not okay. If you actually look at the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he extends what it means not to murder. That in our own heart, when we make judgments against people, we diminish who they are based on those judgments. Man, if someone walked into our congregation with a giant Biden t-shirt on, it'd be hard not to judge that person based on the shirt that they wear, and yet to be human is so much more than that. Or a woman who walked in with a big Trump t-shirt on, it'd be hard not to see past that t-shirt to the fact that she too is as human as you and I. And yet God sees him or sees her for all that they are, all that they are. He made them, he formed them, he fashioned them. And so for us, for us, yes, God truly does call us not to make distinctions, not to make judgments, to extend ourselves. Allie and I, when we first were in ministry, we were missionaries to Germany. And when we went, all right, when we went, we were Americans, we were outsiders coming to insiders into this ministry that we we're going to lead. And part of our fear was not being accepted by the student leaders and by the local church. And there's a lot of fears that were wrapped up and we're giving a year of our life as missionaries and then we're gonna be outsiders, we're gonna be lonely. And yet what Ali and I experienced from day one is a group of Germans that didn't know us. We were annoying to them because as Americans we're brash and obnoxious. We think we know it all. We come in there with our ministry ideas and that we know how to do ministry right in their culture, in their context. And yet what these Germans did is extend grace upon grace. Allie and I didn't just find a good group of Germans to do ministry with. We found a group of men and women who invited us into relationship. They received us. They spent time with us. They built relationship with us. They were immensely patient with us. And so for us, there might be these Things, these hesitations as we experience people, but we have to overcome our biases that we might offer an opportunity, extend our hand, extend relationship to others, that they might find their place here. As we looked at last week, we looked at kind of how God delivered Israel out of Exodus, and this is miraculous delivery. I mean, Israel were slaves to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians oppressed them. Not just them, but they're parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents from generation for 400 years, they were slaves to the Egyptians. The Egyptians used them and abused them. And God miraculously drew them out of uh, Egypt to make a people for himself. And again, we looked at that last week, but what I want to pay to draw your attention to is before 
that before the, the Israel even arrived at the base of Mount Sinai, where God really formed his community, it says this, as they were leaving, in chapter 12, verse 37, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, that means they're traveling out of Egypt, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock with flocks and herds. That when God saved his people, he didn't just save ethnic Israel. There were men and women and children from other nations, including Egyptians. And God somehow expected of Israel that these men and women that were now going to be part of their covenant community, who were before their slave owners, who held political power over them, that they were to be invited as fully part of God's chosen people, as brothers and sisters at the very same table. And God expected them to bring them in, not at a lower status, but as equal participants in God's covenant relationship. God's mercy is tremendous. His mercy is tremendous. And he expects us and calls us to give it to one another. Well, lastly, we find James saying is that the true mark of a church is visible mercy. The true mark of the church is visible mercy mercy. Then we think about what are we known for? Or how do other people perceive us? What do they see in us? Do they see a group, a community that is willing to overcome, to lay down every preconceived notion, every, everything within our heart, every preconceived judgment we might have, and be willing to receive everyone who wants to have a seat at the table of the family of God. Are we, are we that community? I think that community would be weird. I think in this culture, I think in this country, I think in our city, I think if we were that receptive, I think we'd be weird. But in a way that displays the mercy of God, in a way in which we're willing to say, yeah, we'll take you as you are. Come, let's discover God's love together. Now, to be human is to be judgmental. I mean, I'm judgmental. I mean, we judge people on all kinds of things, right? We judge them on Facebook posts and social media posts. We judge them on what they wear, what they look like. I mean, I'm bald. I get plenty of judgments for being bald, you know? I have some people ask me, did you mean to do that to yourself? Like, I had no, I had no, you know, I couldn't help it, you know? Um, you know, we have all kinds of ways to be human and our heart is to make judgments, so I'm judgmental. I'm going to share with uh, one of the, there's a group of men that I have found it hard not to judge until about six months ago. There's a group of men that I've just had sort of a natural proclivity to kind of think less than their physical attire and their wardrobe based on the shoes that they wore. Now, I'm a, a, I'm a sneaker guy. Now, I don't have tons of, sho uh, of shoes. You might have like 19 pairs of shoes. But when I do buy shoes, I'll spend hours and days and weeks trying to find the exact pair of shoes that I want to buy, okay? Because I care about my footwear. And then about uh, six months ago, I was having a conversation uh, with a guy out here in the uh, uh, hallway. This is actually during COVID when we actually weren't meeting here in the church. And he was on the security team, and he's my age. And I'm looking at shoes, I'm like, oh, your shoes, like, they look so comfortable. Where'd you get those? 
He's like telling me like where he like got his shoes. I'm like, man, they look so good. You know, he's like giving me all the information. And then I like go home and I'm like looking on the internet and uh, all about these shoes, reading reviews and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, Allie, come look at these shoes. Man, these are so comfortable. And so-and-so said they were so comfortable. I, mean, I got to get a pair of these shoes. And she's like, you sound like an old guy. And so I want to apologize to this guy right here, the guy who wears the white New Balance, because I have just in my heart tended to judge men who wear the white New Balance shoes as like sort of like out of general fashion, they've just sort of given up on the sneaker game altogether. I'm, a, I'm a heading the same direction, right? I'm looking for com- comfortable shoes that are like a really bland taupe type of color right now. That's kind of like what I'm like really into. You know, I say this jokingly, maybe not because when I was 22, I probably did have judgments against this guy. You can take the image down. But to be judgmental is to be human. And I think in some ways, we, we, we don't have to take ourselves so seriously as a church. If we can like recognize like, yeah, that's true. Like some people like harder for me than others. Some people annoy me. I'm annoying to some people, you know? But when we recognize that, but are then willing to overcome that, when we're then willing to say, but I'm not gonna allow that to inhibit me from extending a hand of relationship, of receiving someone, of giving myself to them in relationship and in gospel community then it's there that we're actually extending mercy to people. We're extending patience and grace and love and acceptance. There's a a friend of mine um, who uh, called me. She lives in Chicago and uh, goes to church out in Chicago, has grown up in her church all her life, maybe a little bit grew up in a church bubble. And she called me like a couple years ago asking for my advice and my opinion. Uh, She's like, you know, Nick, I respect you. Like, I know that you have a heart for those who... Uh, aren't a part of the church and you know we're in this new neighborhood I'm just trying to figure out how do I love my neighbor and she's like but I got to tell you like my neighbor you know he's a homosexual and I've never really encountered someone like this before and I'm just figuring out how is it that I love this person while not compromising the truth of scriptures or God how do I appropriately like share the love of Jesus with him what does that look like and how do I do that well I mean, some of us, one, might be afraid to admit that that would be us. But then, two, to put in the work to figure out how is it that I receive this person. And she spent a lot of time just logging hours with this guy and building a friendship with him. And they grew a wonderful friendship. A couple years later, one afternoon, they're hanging out and tears in his eyes. He says, I hope one day when I get married that you'll be at my wedding. He loved her and felt so loved and accepted by her that he would want her at her at his wedding he wasn't he didn't love god didn't know god didn't fear god any of those sort of things although he's spiritually curious when she called me after that and she's like well, what would i do if you were to invite me to my his wedding i don't want him to know that it's like okay that this lifestyle is you know is is not okay that that god wants us to change and wants us to be holy and walk holy I just said to her, as you know, in our conversation, I just said, do you think this guy already knows the judgments of the church? That he already knows, like, where you stand? Oh, yeah, he, like, knows where I stand and where we stand. Well, then, he doesn't need to know or learn that. But what he hasn't experienced is the mercy of the church. What he hasn't experienced is the extent that the church is willing to kind of get over themselves and their own judgments in order to extend the patience and the love of God. 
And for us, a true mark is not that we wouldn't go to the wedding. It's that, man, what would keep us from it? Because we're mercy people. We are mercy people. Well, I want to kind of close, I do want to close with one final story that I think really sort of, I think shows a picture, and it's a story within our own community that really shows a picture of what does this look like for us as a gospel community, as a holy people, to be these people. And I share this because it's happening. Like, I know that, like, people in our church, like, are welcoming, that we are inviting people in our home, but it doesn't mean that we quit. It doesn't mean that we allow unchecked biases to keep us from not welcoming all that God would have us be part of our local community. But there's a family that found us like over like during like COVID. They found us online and began attending online. They became members online, pretty cool. Uh, and then got com- uh, plugged into a community group and began attending in person like that community group. And this past fall, like I got lunch with like the husband and just to hang out, just to get to know him better. And I was like, hey, like how's the community group going? Like, do you enjoy it? What's it like? All that kind of stuff. And he's like, Nick, I just got to tell you, it's been a wonderful experience. It's been a wonderful experience. I'm like, what do you mean it's been a wonderful experience? He's like, I've grown up in the church. Like my whole life, I've been a part of the church. And he's like, but I've never felt welcome. I've never felt like I belong. And he shared with me how he's on the spectrum. He has some mild form of autism and that hurts him. it's, It's hard. It's a burden for him socially. He can be socially awkward. He can be hard to find it natural to read the room and understand how people are relating and what to say and what not to say. And he just said, you know, my whole life, like I've grown up, but I've never felt welcome or that I belong or that people want to spend time with me. But my community group, they want to spend time with me. They invite me over to their home. We do activities together. We do hobbies together. And this guy who's married, who's raised kids and has, you know, a steady job in the trades, finally has a place. He said, finally, feels like he belongs. And this is gospel community, that each of us would be committed to the work of mercy, that each of us would be committed to welcoming one another in relationship, welcoming one another into our community groups, into our homes, that we would build relationships. And another challenge for us as a church is how do we do that virtually and online? But how do we welcome each other into one another and in community online as well. The gospel tells us that Jesus received us. So we're called to receive others. We're called by God to extend mercy. And so in closing, I just want to ask some questions for you to consider for yourself. Might there be some unchecked biases that play out in your life? Might there be some people who you find it hard to be around them or want to go and shake their hand and introduce yourself to them? Are there some people that you would find it hard to invite them over to your house for lunch or out to lunch to spend time with? Might God have you bring that before him? And might God call you into new relationships with people that you might find and discover new graces and new friendships with people that you never dreamed of being friends with? New brothers and sisters that you can share faith with? Do some of your unchecked biases lead into who you invite? I think a big medium within the church in our coming season is going to be personal invitations. So much of what the church does or what's happening, sorry, in our world is through social media and posting things and reading things. And, but personal invitations is a huge medium of expressing that we want someone 
that we see someone, that we care about someone, and that we want relationship with someone. And so do you withhold invitations from some people because you just don't want to be around them? They're hard for you to be around. And might God say, hey, trust me, why don't you invite them over? Why don't you go over across the room and say hello and introduce yourself? Personal invitations are going to be huge. Are you someone who maybe has judged the church? There's some who are part of the family of God who looks at the church and says, the church is hard for me, and I'd rather just keep her at an arm's length away. I like coming and sitting in the back room or coming and not being known. You know, I like kind of showing and, you know, praying and worshiping God and hearing a good sermon and leaving. I don't want to build relationships with anybody. And might God convict you of your judgments on his church, on his family? And might he be saying to you, you know, you need to get over yourself and you need to choose to belong. You need to choose to take some steps of faith in order to integrate. What would covenant look like to be a mercy people? What would it look like for us to be known as a people who are willing to awkwardly extend our relationship to other people? I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it'd be a beautiful thing. When we talk about being a holy people, a set-apart people, a set-apart people does a dirty work of self-reform. They're committed to fulfilling the whole law that God has given them. And they understand that their true mark, what really distinguishes them is not their judgments, but the mercy that they extend to others. Let me pray to end us. Heavenly Father, the weight of your scripture is just heavy on my heart. It is challenging for me, God, because I just struggle. I mean, I'm weak, and it's hard not to, to judge people. It's hard not to feel and sense my own insecurities, my own hesitations towards growing closer or spending more time with someone or inviting someone to my home or into my community group. God, group dynamics are huge in our culture. Socializing and building friendships is, is huge. And yet, God, you call us not to make distinguish, distinguishments, not to, not to allow ourselves through our judgments to preclude people from experiencing being a part of your family. That, God, every man and woman that would come in and come to know you, Jesus, as a fellow co-heir with you, they're equals at your table. So, God, would you teach us to be those people? And, Father, where there is sin, God, would your merciful grace be applied there? God, we be humble enough to repent. God, would you be gracious enough to restore and give us the courage, give us the courage to be willing to welcome each and every that you would invite into our faith family. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.